Welcome again, everyone. Uh, and um, welcome again, everyone online. I'm going to stand back here to preach today. Uh, Omicron is going around. I've tested clear, but it, I certainly want to take the safest way. So, and I know I can talk and project a lot. Um, so I thought I'd sit back here uh, just to be a little bit safer. But welcome again, everyone. Uh, this next few weeks in this sort of epiphany season, I'm in, in our church calendar, I'm going to be focusing on a sermon series uh, I made up called Things We Value. And uh, it's, we'll do this for, I think, about five weeks, uh, five, six weeks. And it's things, it's not like it's the official ELCA statement of values. It's not the official Lord of Grace statement of values. It's Lars values, or things that Lars would tell you if you came and said, hey, Lars, what do you guys teach over there at Lord of Grace? What are some things you believe in? I could parse you the nuances of doctrine and get into the nature of justification and the relationship of the law. But I, th I, I thought of these things as things that maybe are more relevant to where we are today, uh, that we can understand. So I'm going to kind of focus on some of these. But again, take it for what it is. It's my sort of unofficial list of things. Um, and I'm going to start... This week, uh, I thought I'd start with, the phrase, with our theme of thinking. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm countering a, trying to counter a lot of public perception that's out there, that when Christians come to church, we check our brains at the door, and we stop asking critical questions, and we just do what we're told and believe what we're told, and then uh, it's sort of like, well, what's the modern phrase on the internet? You're a sheeple. It, you know, whenever you want to win an internet debate, you just say you're a sheeple, and then that wins it, right? Um, well, that's, that, that's what I, I anyways, um, but that's kind of, that, that's a popular perception. They'll say, I'm a, I'm a critical thinker. I can't do religion. I, I can't, you know, I got, I ask hard questions. I'm not good for religion. I've said, and I say, but that's not who we are. That's not Lord of Grace. That's not us. Um, but there are some who are, and there are some who are very much that way. This is the way it is or else. Um, and, and I would argue to the critics out there, that even the most hardcore fundamentalist actually has to do a lot of thinking. Um, and again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but there really are a couple ways of doing thinking in religion. Uh, a couple different ways. And one way is I call it defending answers. You, and the other way is looking for new answers. You're either defending answers or you're looking for new answers. What do I mean by that? If you're in the defender camp, uh, you basically already feel like you have the conclusions figured out, and your job is to defend them, uh, promote them, uh, prove them, justify them, sell them, package them. Uh, this is what an apologist does, right? You defend the answers and the conclusions. Um, and the biggest example of that is the statement, or maybe the claim, that says something along the lines of, the Bible's never wrong, and I just do what the Bible says. Uh, and there's always usually a little bit of a rub there, kind of like, not like those people over there. And if you believe the Bible is never wrong, and that you always do what the Bible says, then you have a ton of thinking to do to explain all the passages that you don't really do. Let me give you an example. 
slavery passages. We kind of forget these are there. It's an uncomfortable uh, part of the, our legacy and our scriptures. Um, but here, 1 Peter 2. Slaves accept the authority of your masters with all deference. Not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you're beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. You probably have not heard a lot of sermons on that one, have you? And for good reason. We don't believe it. We don't follow it. But I go to my critics. The critics who say, Lars, you don't believe in the Bible. You guys just pick and choose what you want. And I'm like, oh, so if you're sitting in your office, some teenage sex trafficking victim manages to escape and runs to your office, do you send her to the shelter? Or do you tell her to go back to the pimp? Because slaves should obey their masters even when they're harsh. It's the will of God, and by obeying, she'll witness to Christ. That's her calling. Do you tell her to do that? Oh, well, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I'm like, oh, so you don't believe in the Bible. Oh, well, no, but you have to understand, you see, it's a different context. And when it talks about slavery, it's a different kind of slavery. It doesn't really mean sex slavery. You have to understand that in that situation, I'm like, oh, so context matters, and you don't do every one of them. Suddenly, the Believe in the Bible crowd is full of all sorts of really creative thinking to try to explain away the contradiction that they hold. With, with one hand that says that the Bible's never wrong and we always do what it says, and then to say, but in this case, it's wrong and we don't do what it says, but we don't really believe it's wrong, but, and we're not doing it, but, but... And that takes a lot of thinking. So contrary to the secular critics who say, you stop using your brain when you go to church, I would say... No, you guys don't understand it at all. To just sit there and say, you know, religion's all stupid, you're all a bunch of morons, it's all fairy tales, let's go do whatever we want. That's easy. That's easy peasy. What drives us, I think, to want to make these sort of strong claims about Scripture is that there's this fear, I think there's kind of a latent fear, that if we admit that the Bible was written by human beings, that it didn't fall perfectly and magically from heaven, boom, having been pre-written by God on the throne, that, that if we admit that humans wrote it and that humans who make mistakes and have biases and live in cultures and sometimes have blinders on about things, that if we admit that humans wrote it and that humans make mistakes like every human's everywhere, then, then the conclusion will be that the Bible isn't really an authority anymore and that we can really just pick and choose the parts that we like and that what we will do as people because we're sinful people is we'll pick the parts that validate our sinful desires and we'll just ignore the other ones that don't, that don't agree with us. And the Bible will essentially be mean nothing. So therefore we must, right? But what do you do? What do you do if you're worried about that? You draw a line in the sand. You draw a line in your thinking. And I drew a graphic to kind of illustrate this. Um, can we get that up there, Lucas? Get the graph. I, I worked long and hard on this one. But if you were to draw it, it looks something like this. 
you ask questions and you entertain answers up until it hits a certain predetermined line. And after that, you don't entertain any possible answer. You, you can't let yourself go there, so to speak. And that's the Bible's never wrong, we always do what it says line. And the difference, I would say, between being a mainline Christian, being ELCA, being at Lord of Grace, where I, at least what I believe, is that we believe the Bible is an authority. We love the Bible. We study it to death. Um, but we allow ourselves to entertain questions and entertain the possibility of answers of things that might be on the other side of that line. We allow ourselves to think that maybe, just maybe, some verses in the Bible just might not have gotten right. That there are certain passages that the Bible writers, no matter how well-intentioned they were, no matter how spirit-filled they were, no matter how much they loved the Lord, that they just might have gotten some things wrong. And that they might not really have been teaching in line with Jesus' teachings and his example. Let me give you an example of this. First Peter, I'm sorry, similar to 1 Peter 2, Colossians 3. This is, this is every, every bride that comes to me for a wedding. This is what they request these days. <laughs> Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for that is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not promote your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Wow, there's another one you don't hear preached on. Again, why? Well, look at this passage. Look at what it's got. It's got a hierarchy, 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 right? Husbands over wives, fathers over children, masters over slaves, bing, 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 bing. Everybody's in a place, they have a place, and everybody has someone on top of them telling them what to do. That's how the world works, right? And so you notice the whole stuff, and the idea is, you know, wives are supposed to obey their husbands, but husbands are supposed to be good about it, right? It doesn't take away the power, it just says use it wisely. Be good with it. You know, parent, children, obey your parents in everything. I, I can just wait, I should do this a confirmation class. You know, obey in everything. I mean, I know the answer is gonna be, well, what if? And some kids will come to me and they'll rattle off things that their parents have done, and I'm like, I can't tell you to obey that. I just can't, you know? I don't want you to be disrespectful, but no, I can't tell you to obey that. Not everything. There has to be exceptions, right? Jesus didn't make these rules. He never tells women to obey. He never tells children to obey. He never tells slaves to obey. Even the Apostle Paul doesn't get into this very much. Remember the Apostle Paul, he's the one who says we're neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. I think Paul had a much more egalitarian vision of it. But that's Jesus and Paul, right? You know, Jesus is the one that's got Mary Magdalene and is coming along with him and everything. And Paul's the one who's got women heading up his churches, literally running the churches. But the early Christian church, as it grew, they lived in the Roman Empire. 
which was extremely hierarchical and authoritarian. In the Roman Empire, everybody had a place and everyone had someone they answered to and everyone had an authority over them. And you stayed in your place or they'd kill you. That was the way it was. In Roman law, in fact, the male head of the household was called the pater familias. That's the fancy Latin word for father of the family, which meant he was the head of the family and he would usually be the oldest male in the household. So the household might have lots of generations he would be the, the oldest male, the father, the grandfather, and everybody, everybody in that household, wives, slaves, servants, concubines, children, everyone had to obey him. And failure to obey could include death. He could literally kill a servant or a slave or a wife or a concubine for not obeying. That was Roman law. And the system that the Romans used, the way they called that was patriarchy. Father rules. Arcos is rules. So that's based on the Greek. Pater archi, father rules. And so, uh, so here they are, the Christian church, and they're coming along, and there's Jesus with his, with his like, we're, I'm going to hang out with sinners and prostitutes, and we're going to do this. And then Paul comes along, and he's got women running his church, and then the Romans come along and go, oh, Christian, so you're going to let all the slaves go free? What are you going to do to society? Our whole social order is going to fall apart. And you can imagine the early Christians getting nervous. Because the way the Romans deal with people who mess with the social order is they hang them up on crosses. Remember Spartacus? Didn't end well for him, did it? All that freeing the slave stuff. So what did the early church did? They kind of sold out. And they said, well, you know, all right, Romans, don't worry. We'll be good Romans, too. We'll be good citizens. We won't be freeing slaves and getting bossy women. We'll put everyone in their place. And, when the Ro and then they tell them, go back to church and say, Church members, when, it, when they see how good and obedient you are, they'll see how great Jesus is. It'll be an evangelism tool. Right? They sold out. They caved to the culture. Because partly they were afraid of persecution, and that was a legitimate fear. But I also think they had a lack of imagination. They couldn't picture how the world could work if there weren't obedient people and hierarchies and authorities. I mean, who's going to till the fields and I mean, who's gonna, how's a marriage going to work if, you know, everybody, if, if, they, if there's no person in charge? How's a decision going to get done? I remember in college, there was a guy, he, he, he came from a very sort of traditionalist background. He came up to one of my philosophy professors. Her specialty was feminist philosophy. And he came up to her and he's like, well, you can't just have, you know, things 50-50. I mean, someone's got to make a decision. I mean, how, how do things get done? Someone has to give that 1%. It can't just be 50-50. I mean, who, who's going to decide? And she goes, well, how does, why does someone have to decide? Can't you figure it out? We can't just figure it out. Well, what, 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 what if they both want the opposite? How does anything get done? Someone has to be that extra 1%. And she just looked at him and kind of and then walked away and went, moron. And I, I realized she couldn't get inside his worldview. She, she couldn't understand a worldview where what would happen if there wasn't authorities to tell how, how you can't just have two people negotiate everything. Oh my God, he couldn't understand that. And she couldn't understand that he couldn't understand it. And, and, but what, what he was talking about was exactly the worldview that they're coming from here. Well, somebody has to be in charge, right? You know? And, you know, I get it. it, it, it when no one's in charge, it can get complicated and exhausting at times. 
You know, you're constantly negotiating things. You do this, you do this. Well, I did this, well, I did this, why did you? I'm doing this, but you're not doing that. Well, you did that yesterday, now it's your turn. You know, on and on and on. It requires lots and lots of talky, 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 and conversation and negotiation, and it gets exhausting. And if you're the kind of person who just wants to give out an order like it is, eh, you're not going to like that 50-50 stuff. But we don't teach that at Lord of Grace. We don't teach that. We, we teach that, it's, that, that we don't have to have a boss. I was um, listening to a podcast uh, online about this big church in Seattle. I mean, this place was huge, tens of thousands at one point. And um, the, the podcast was about how the whole thing collapsed and fell apart. Uh, it exploded, it collapsed. And they're interviewing former members of the church. And one of the things about this church is that the pastor in charge, he was, I mean, every week, gender roles, gender roles, gender roles, gender roles. He just hit that like, I mean, and he didn't just say, you know, obey. He was clear, when your husband says to do something, you do everything. You give him what he wants all the time. You keep him satisfied, even if it's not what you want. That is God's will. And he was adamant about that. So they were interviewing this young woman. She you know, 30, 33, something. And she said, look, I'd grown up in a really religious household. And, and I believed the pastor. And I felt like I needed to do anything my husband said, that I had to, that, that I didn't want to go against God. And so I gave my husband everything he wanted to, even when I didn't want to. And, he said, and she said, I've just laid there like numb, trying to bottle up my feelings, pretend I didn't, wasn't against things. She said, it's like I had no agency over my own body for years. And I, I didn't even dare to tell my husband no. I couldn't have a headache. I just had to do what I was told. And she goes, then when the church collapsed, I've had to be in therapy to try to learn to reclaim my own body for myself. Then they switched and then started interviewing one of the worship pastors. Um, and the guy, he was a musician. I've actually seen him play. Incredible. Brilliant man, right? And he's up there and he's, and, and he's, He's talking on this podcast, and he's saying, talking about how, uh, how he felt and was regretting. Uh, well, first of all, he talked about how great the church was in its heyday, and things were going great, and all these baptisms. And then he said, but the things I made my wife do, without realizing I was doing it, and then he just suddenly broke into tears and said, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I can't take it back. I regret it to this day. And then I'm listening to this thinking, you know, nobody wins. Nobody won here. Nobody won in this scenario. Nobody was happy. At the end of the day, the system didn't work. They tried it, it didn't work. And you want to guess what? The church collapsed because that pastor that was all about the rules, it turned out he was a tyrannical dictator and was abusive of his staff. Shocking. But here at Lord, here we teach that slavery is always wrong. No matter what, end of story. We teach that beating your wife is wrong all the time, no matter what, end of story, done. We teach that marriage is a mutual thing. It doesn't have to be a person in charge. That This is more like a Jesus-like vision of mutual care and love than one person having to make the decision. Which means, essentially, that we believe that the writer of Colossians here, for all the good he got and everything else, and there's a lot of really great stuff in the book of Colossians, when he talks about the nature of God, it's brilliant. But on this part, he didn't get it right. 
A more Jesus-like world is not a world of hierarchy and authority and slavery and patriarchy and everybody in their place. It's a much more mutual world, and when you read the Gospels, you see that's how Jesus lived. So yeah, we've allowed ourselves to cross that magic line, to entertain the possibility that God's will is on the other side of that line. And, and this does involve some thinking. And it's, it's a different kind of thinking, right? But it's still a faithful thinking. And this is why I bring this up. Because we are not checking our brains at the door and just doing whatever we're told and clinging to old-fashioned laws and, uh, you know, because we're so afraid that everyone's going to do anything they want. We don't have to let fear of entertaining those kind of questions hold us back from asking things. Like, is this really good? Does this really work? Is this really what Jesus wanted? And that's not relativism or wishy-washiness. That's being faithful to Jesus. That's loving God wherever God's spirit takes you and to whatever conclusion God takes you. It's being faithful to Jesus even when Jesus' example isn't exactly the same as what people wrote. But that's what we always strive for. Will we do it perfectly? No. But that's what we go back to. Trying to be a thinking Christian who follows the way of Jesus. Amen.